Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome, or NMS, is a rare but serious adverse drug reaction commonly associated with antipsychotic use. Due to a low incidence that ranges from 0.02 up to 3% of patients using antipsychotics, coupled with a differential diagnosis that may closely mirror serotonin syndrome or malignant hyperthermia, the identification and selection of the appropriate NMS treatment regimens can be a challenge. Today, Dr. Mohamed Najib, one of our pharmacists from Mayo Clinic Health System in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, explains the diagnostic criteria for NMS, the pharmacologic role that antipsychotic agents have in causing it, and explores current literature to guide appropriate treatment regimens. Today, we will be discussing NMS and what a mess it is. Our objectives for today will include listing the cause and risk factors associated with developing NMS, identifying the diagnostic criteria associated with it, describing the pathophysiology behind NMS, and then lastly, selecting an appropriate treatment regimen for NMS. And these are some of the definitions I will be using today. Uh, I'll just give everybody here a few moments to glance at. A little bit of background. NMS is caused by a rare side effect from medications. Uh, it's often life-threatening, and it's typically associated with antipsychotics or antiemetics, with the biggest culprit being allopurinol. Onset for this typically is seen between 4 to 14 days. However, it had been noted to occur between hours of initiation of doses or even increasing the dose. If a patient comes in, their dose gets rapidly titrated. Uh, you can see symptom onset within a few hours. And I would like to make a note that even in patients who have been receiving the same drug over the course of many years are still at risk of developing NMS. Who does this affect? Well, primarily younger males. Uh, and then the reason behind that is more so have to do with the reason that they may be prescribed an antipsychotic. For example, schizophrenia. Most often you'll see those occur in patients that are younger and happen to be male. In regards to the incidence rates, um, it's between 0.02 to 3%, and that wide range is typically associated with the 3% more so with first-generation antipsychotics, such as haloperidol, and the lower incidence rates is typically associated more so with second-generation antipsychotics, such as olanzapine or risperdone. Additionally, um, over the years, as this has become more and more uh, known, providers are more acutely aware of some of the symptoms and thus can respond a little bit faster uh, to prevent full onset of NMS. Why is this significant? Well, the reason that that is, is based off the numbers from the incidence uh, percentage, in Wisconsin and Minnesota alone, we can expect to see between 560 and 1,200 patients annually that may develop NMS. At least for myself, uh, I would I wanted to be as familiar with the topic as possible, and that's why I'm here today to tell you a little bit about it. It's often overlooked during the differential. You know, if that's not something that you're aware of or it's not something on your radar, um, that leads to delayed 
treatment, and then if we delay appropriate treatment, that often leads to poorer outcomes for the patient. Some of the causes for theorized to cause NMS is a sudden and marked drop in central dopaminergic activity. There are other postulated mechanisms, however, this is the most widely accepted. And as I briefly mentioned, antipsychotics are often associated with this, with typical antipsychotics or first-generation antipsychotics being at a greater risk versus atypical or second-generation antipsychotics. And they can also be caused by antiemetics that act on the D2 receptors, such as prochloroperazine. And lastly, they have been shown, it has been shown when you are withdrawing a Parkinson's medication, such as uh, L-DOPA or carbidipa levodopa, that can induce NMS. What does this look like in terms of patient symptoms? Well, some of the manifestations here include having mental status change, and this is usually the first symptom that would be associated with NMS. It's usually defined by profound agitation or delirium, um, and you will see this in 9 out of 10 cases of NMS, so this is usually one of the first symptoms to watch out for, followed by increased muscle rigidity, typically being described as a lead pipe rigidity that has increased resistance throughout the entire body. And then these two are typically associated with more of a milder case of NMS. And then the next two here, um, hypothermia, um, we can see temperatures as high as almost 42 degrees Celsius. And then lastly, autonomic instability, in which you see patients wildly tachycardic, um, having uh, severe hypertension. Um, and once we get to these two stages, typically it would be defined as severe NMS requiring immediate treatment. What are some of the risk factors? Well, unfortunately, it is relatively unpredictable. However, there have been theorized some environmental factors that can play a role in that. People who are dehydrated um, or at physical exhaustion or even exposed to a tremendous amount of heat can put them at a higher risk. And then also polypharmacy. And we know this is a problem in the pharmacy world with many other medications. However, in this case, if a patient's going to two different providers and different pharmacies, that link of communication is broken. Thus, they may be on numerous antipsychotics, increasing their risk. And here are some of the more inherent risk factors associated with that. I'd like to bring your attention towards uh, just a couple of these here deemed high-risk risk factors. And that includes being on multiple antipsychotics, being on typical antipsychotics, high-dose antipsychotics, and also rapid titration. Other ones here in our wheel um, are designated lower risk factors in developing NMS. They have been reported in a few case reports, but generally across the board are not always seen in most NMS cases. How do we diagnose this? Well, unfortunately, there is no clear criteria. Um, there's this tool here that had been developed by a team of expert clinicians in which they had associated a score to certain areas in which you may see NMS. And this tool is unvalidated, and there is no threshold in which you can cross to say somebody has NMS. You can maybe theorize if their score is a 5 out of 100, uh, they're likely not to have it, versus, you know, 90 on that. But some of the items I'd like to point out here are uh, the most egregious portion of this is being exposed to a dopamine antagonist, of course, with a score of 20. Experiencing symptoms of hypothermia, um, having an elevated creatinine kinase, showing mental um, instability, 
and then uh, muscle rigidity. And then you tally these scores up, and the team that came up with this didn't intend for it to be a diagnostic tool, but more so trying to point you in the right direction if a patient is developing NMS. Why is this hard to diagnose? Why is it not typically seen on the differential? Well, uh, most often than not, patients may present with the same symptoms, but on your radar, you might are led to believe that this might be meningitis. Uh, it could be rhabdomyolysis or other dystonias. And due to the fact that this is caused by a drug, making it an adverse drug event, it is sometimes hard to rule out which specific medication may be uh, inducing that. Therefore, we would have to go through their medications and discontinue them one by one to rule out the offending agent. So what I have here before you is just a list of some of the common uh, dysautonomias seen and some of the shared symptoms with NMS, making it a little bit more so difficult to diagnose. And hopefully, after I discuss this, uh, it makes the picture a little bit clearer. So I'm just going to go through the top section here, which is NMS, of course. Typically, we see onsets of exposure to the medication between hours to weeks. And then the check marks would indicate the patients experiencing those symptoms. For NMS, we will see symptoms associated with psychological symptoms, experiencing muscle rigidity, hypothermia, and then autonomic instability. Serotonin syndrome. This one is closely resembles the symptoms of NMS. As you can see, some of the key differentiating factors here are the onset. Typically, when exposed to serotonogic medications, we will see uh, symptoms being induced uh, roughly six to eight hours. And while it does share across the board the symptoms of NMS, it does lack the severity of the muscle rigidity and the hypothermia seen in NMS. And I'd also like to point out in serotonin syndrome, patients often exhibit nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, which is not associated with NMS. Next up, we have malignant hypothermia. This one may be a little bit easier uh, to tease out versus NMS. It, typically does occur within one hour of drug exposure. And in this scenario, uh, these drugs are usually seen during anesthesia uh, when patients are going to the operating room. For example, patients given succinylcholine can induce this reaction. So more often than not, you do not see these psychological symptoms because the patients are within or getting ready to go into the OR just after the operation. But it does share some of the other symptoms with NMS. Now, this one is probably the hardest one to tease out uh, from NMS, which is malignant catatonia. As you can see, it does share all the symptoms associated with NMS. However, one of the key distinctions here is that symptom onset does occur from days to weeks. And I know that does occur with NMS as well. But this one typically is not seen during initiation of the medication. On, on average, on a whole, it's typically seen uh, about a week or so after initiation. And then usually the psychological symptoms associated with malignant catatonia has a slow progression that does take about a week to develop. Um, I would like to make a note in during my research for this topic, um, one of the studies that I had looked at made a comment that up to 25% of their patients, they couldn't make a clinical distinction between the two. That's why this one is probably the hardest one to tease out. And then lastly, we have recreational drugs. And some of the examples for this would be um, ecstasy, cocaine, or even methamphetamine. 
patients are typically seen to have, exhibit symptoms within one hour of consumption of these drugs. And the issue with this is we don't know what doses they're at. Usually people who overdose will tend to show are at a higher risk of developing NMS than if quote unquote taking normal doses. And then it often does lack the muscle rigidity associated with NMS. Okay, so I hope everybody was paying attention here for our first question of the day. We have a patient with a past medical history of schizophrenia and depression who presents to the emergency department unconscious. Vital signs include temperature of 41 degrees, a heart rate of 122, and a blood pressure of 149 over 87, and demonstrating stable resistance throughout all ranges of motion. Labs are currently pending. What is the most likely diagnosis at this time? All right, it looks like a majority of you did answer the correct answer, which is the second one of NMS. And I'll just go through these real quick. Um, again, probably the hardest one to discern uh, is between serotonin syndrome. It does share some of the characteristics, but the key identifier here is that the patient's showing uh, stable resistance throughout the entirety of the body versus in serotonin syndrome. Uh, we don't see as much resistance, and the information did not provide us with um, if a patient had any nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. In regards to meningitis, you know, this patient's a schizophrenic, they have hypothermia, so most likely it's probably not going to be meningitis and more so NMS. And then lastly, uh, malignant hypothermia wouldn't be correct because this is usually associated with anesthesia and the patient had not been in surgery recently. So now that we know what causes NMS and what are some of the manifestations of the clinical symptoms, let's see if we can help prevent NMS. And what I did is I looked at this study that implemented a protocol. And how this study was conducted was that they had pulled together a cohort for them to study, which included 657 patients. And these patients were admitted for the hospital for 28 consecutive days and given a first-generation antipsychotic. And they also needed to have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Due to the nature of this adverse event, it wouldn't be ethically responsible to compare this to a control group. So what they used instead was a historical comparator group that consisted of 192 patients. This historical comparator group was done by the same team about 10 years prior to this actual study. And they felt that this gave them the best shot at acquiring the information that they were looking for. What did they do in regards to the exclusion criteria? Well, if anybody had a history of NMS, um, they were excluded. If they had an indication for a second generation antipsychotic, and this was due to the fact that the historical, historical comparator group did not receive any second generation antipsychotics during that time. And then lastly, they needed to be drug free, and this drug free term is anything that would have acted on the D2 receptor, so either antipsychotics or antiemetics for a period of two weeks prior to this study being conducted. And now what the protocol called for is discontinuation of any antipsychotics if the creatinine kinase was greater than 1,000 units per mil, had a temperature greater than 38 degrees Celsius, showed incapacitating rigidity, or was demonstrated to have definite NMS. I would like to point out I tried to figure out what their criteria for definite NMS was, and it, they didn't mention that, and it was more so at the discretion of the treating physician. Let's take a look at some of the results for their protocol group. They had 28 cases in which antipsychotics were discontinued. 
18 of which were associated with having an elevated creatinine kinase, seven of which had elevated temperature, two demonstrating incapacitating rigidity, and one experiencing definite NMS. They discontinued all these medications, however, due to the fact that these were also schizophrenic patients, um, they needed to be reintroduced to a different medication. They were reinitiated on a different antipsychotic, and they used a lower potency towards the D2 receptor, and after all, symptom resolution of NMS, none of the patients ex re-experienced the symptoms that they presented with when they were exhibiting signs of NMS. Let's take a look at the outcomes as compared to their historical comparator group. As you can see on the chart here, the incidence was rather uh, higher in the historical group um, as compared to the proto group, protocol group, which is probably predictable, with the historical group being at about just over 2% and then the protocol group at 0.2%. The incidence was significant in this case um, with a substantial odds ratio as well. In conclusion, what they were able to show is once you implement, or if you were to implement a protocol monitoring at least, you know, your cranin kinase temperature or muscle rigidity, you can effectively prevent progression of NMS and even incidence of NMS. So what were some of the limitations of this study? Well, it was a rather small sample size in the historical comparator group. It was a historical comparator group, which makes things a little bit difficult um, to making, making sure that, you know, you're not introducing any sort of biases. Um, I would like to mention, though, that they did correct for um, sex, age, and routes of administration of the medication uh, for both groups. And then the historical comparator group did receive a slightly higher dose of antipsychotics as compared to their protocol group. And then lastly, the historical comparator group were missing the information in regards to what the protocol was looking for, so the creatinine kinase, temperature, and muscle rigidity, so it's kind of hard to see what the incidence rates were in that group. What is our takeaway? Well, you know, when we're prescribing these medications to patients, especially at higher doses, those uh, having the temperature, kinase, and signs of rigidity in the back of our mind should be a thing that we should implement moving forward, and then if a patient was being were to be discharged on a higher dose, uh, having more frequent follow-ups to help track some of these symptoms. Okay, so let's take a look at the pathophysiology. Over here, I have the dopaminergic pathway, um, in which the mesocortical, the nigrostradial pathway, and the mesolimbic pathway, along with the hypothalamus, are typically involved in. Uh, most of the dopaminergic pathway. I would like to make a note that the nigrostradial pathway is responsible for about 80% of our dopamine within the brain, and it's usually associated with a lot of our motor functions, you know, moving. The hypothalamus is often associated with uh, temperature regulation, and then the mesocortical and mesolimbic pathways are typically associated with more thought process, critical thinking skills, etc. So what happens when we give dopamine antagonists to a patient? Well, we start blocking some of these pathways off. When we block off these pathways, this is typically where we might experience some of the symptoms of NMS. Okay, so as I mentioned before, uh, it's theorized that a sudden and marked drop in dopamine activity results in some of the, in NMS. So let's take a look at the neuron. At the presynaptic area of the neuron, we have either your own natural synthesis of dopamine, or if you're deficient, you may be given some L-dopa to produce more dopamine. And then L-dopa or tyrosine are synthesized into dopamine. 
Dopamine is later carried out through dopamine transporters to be released in the synaptic portion. At a point where we can decrease dopamine here is by providing patients with medications such as terbenazine or reserpine. Not that these drugs are used too often anymore, but this is one method of uh, lowering dopamine activity. Our next sort of pathway here is at the synaptic layer. So dopamine gets released from the dopamine transporters and it has a couple of different paths it can follow. It can A, get recycled back into the synaptic portion or presynaptic portion of the neuron, or it can be broken down by catecholamine methyltransferase or COMT. And this is where our next area in which NMS can be induced. So if a patient has their medications withdrawn, such as tolcapone or tacopone, um, that leads to a decreased uh, amounts of dopamine. And then the most natural pathway is dopamine gets released into the synapse and then enters through the D2 receptors to the postsynaptic and then providing adequate signaling. And this is where most antipsychotics and antiemetics act on, on this D2 receptor. So if we block this, dopamine stays in the synapse, thus decreasing dopamine. My next question for everybody, which dopaminergic pathway is most affected by antipsychotic therapies? It does look like everyone is correct today. Uh, the nigrostradial pathway is responsible for about 80% of the dopamine function in the brain, and that would be the area that it would be most affected by antipsychotic therapies. So let's take a closer look at some of the offending agents here. I know I briefly touched on a few of them. So this is just a summary of what I went through regarding the neuron. Um, as you can see, we have portions of the presynaptic, synaptic, and postsynaptic areas of the brain. And then in regards to this here, this is kind of categorized as our most offending agents, or at least the highest risk. So which typical antipsychotics are the biggest culprit, you know, including haloperidol, droperidol, flupenazine, followed by atypical antipsychotics, clozapine, ketiapine, you know, risperdone. So these are the most commonly associated ones. All other second generation or atypical antipsychotics can induce NMS but I just didn't list them on here because they're often reported in the literature. And then for antiemetics, promethazine, metoclopyramide, and prochloroperazine. And then lastly, I threw up a miscellaneous category. This is often cited in case reports here and there, tricyclic antidepressants, at least overdosing on them, drugs of abuse, you know, cocaine, MDMA. And then also too, they did notice a propensity in patients who were given an antipsychotic alongside with lithium to have a increased risk of developing NMS. Let's just take a little bit of a closer look as to why, you know, some of these first-generation or typical antipsychotics present a higher risk of developing NMS versus atypical antipsychotics. Well, I'm sure many of you have seen this graph throughout pharmacy school or, you know, whichever school you ended up going to, but for typical antipsychotics, we see the highest binding affinity towards the D2 receptors. As you can see, as a class of medications, they typically do have uh, significant binding towards D2 as compared to atypical medications, whereas atypicals do have variability in their uh, binding towards D2. It's generally not the same across the board. As you can see here, clozapine has lower binding affinity as compared to ris risperidone. Now that we took a look at some of the agents, uh, let's take a little bit of a deeper dive uh, looking at second generation antipsychotics. So we do know that first generations are our biggest culprits, but you know, these guys are, uh, they're not innocent either. What this study did, it was a retrospective analysis that looked at either case reports 
or primary studies uh, prior to November 2013, and that meant any data out there. And their exclusion criteria selected for uh, patients not having a history of NMS wouldn't have administration of a second generation antipsychotic along with another antipsychotic, so they just needed to be on the one, or any NMS demonstrated by withdrawal of a medication such as L-DOPA or Carbidipa levodopa. And the medications that they specifically looked at were olanzapine, risperdone, ketiapine, clozapine, and aripiprazole. They did look at some of the other second-generation antipsychotics, but their end numbers were rather low, you know, two to three, so I decided not to include them here today. And this is what they found. As you can see across the board, they do share a lot of the same characteristics in terms of symptoms, presentation. I would like to make a note here regarding some of these. For hypothermia, Abilify, or I'm sorry, aripiprazole demonstrated the lowest risk. And the ones I really want to point your attention towards are the ones in terms of ICU admission rates or intubation. So aripiprazole did have the highest rates compared to risperdone over here, which had the lowest rates, even though I just showed you that risperdone had quite a high binding affinity towards the D2 receptor. Also of which uh, I'd like to point out the mortality rates here. Um, it was most often associated with ketiapine. And also, even though aripiprazole demonstrated that it had the highest rates of ICU intubation, the data showed no mortalities in all the cases that they had reviewed. For their results, um, even though the numbers clinically may mean something, they were statistically not significant, so you were you know, within the same realm of developing NMS between all second-generation antipsychotics that they studied. And then the cases were rather more so lethal in elderly patients as compared to young patients. And then they showed no clinical or statistical significance with gender or previous use of antipsychotics. So what's our takeaway from this? Well, knowing that second-generation antipsychotics are also risks, factors for developing NMS, and generally, as a class, I think they probably represent a lower risk profile as compared to first-generation antipsychotics, but that's not always the case. So just being mindful of introducing higher doses to patients, um, you know, for example, for olanzapine, uh, given that for acute agitation, or given ketiapine for sleep. I, myself, have seen some rather high doses, and at the time, didn't monitor for any signs or symptoms of NMS, just because I was not aware. Third question of the day, which second-generation antipsychotic has the highest risk associated with an ICU admission? Okay, it looks like everybody has been paying attention, so that's good. Yes, aripiprazole has the highest associated risk with an ICU uh, admission, with it being at 38.5%. And the reason this study kind of came to this hypothesis was that while it did not cause severe symptoms of NMS, it did show a higher propensity for inducing NMS. So now that everybody has a little bit of background, let's talk about what we do best as pharmacists, which is management and treatment options. I'm going to be speaking towards acute management versus uh, managing for somebody in the community setting just due to the nature of this disease and it primarily requiring immediate medical attention. But first and foremost, we want to assess our ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, um, of course, and I, that's something we, we'd re we would do with you know, most critical conditions. We would like to identify and discontinue the offending agents as soon as possible. We would want to provide adequate supportive care. And then lastly, administer appropriate pharmacological interventions. In terms of supportive care, whether or not that may require uh, patients to be 
mechanically ventilated, um, giving them appropriate vasopressors or even cardiac pacing, uh, making sure they're uvolemic, and then ap applying appropriate cooling methods to help lower their fever. And due to the nature of the hyperthermia presented through NMS ca being caused more so by, you know, the muscle rigidity and contractions, antipyretics can be given but are not demonstrated to work, um, such as acetaminophen. Therefore, external and internal cooling methods may be more appropriate. So in regards to external cooling methods, you would want to give somebody either cooling blankets or ice packs. And then in terms of internal cooling methods, um, you can give somebody an uh, esophageal or endotracheal cooling catheters in which you would run cold fluids through to help lower their body temperature. Usually the first medications used to help treat NMS is benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines are typically given for the agitation associated with NMS, um, usually reserved for more profound cases, and they're usually given at normal doses. And the re the two agents primarily used are lorazepam and diazepam. And it was often cited in the literature that these medications had minimal side effects as compared to some of their other members of the family of benzodiazepines, and they also had more robust routes of administration. There have been other benzodiazepines used to help treat NMS in certain case reports. Um, for example, one case reported success with clonazepam versus another one trial the midazolam drip to an intubated patient and did not see success with that. Next up, we have dantrolene, um, and this is primarily going to be used for any patients experiencing hypothermia. Dantrolene is a direct skeletal muscle relaxant that works by disrupting the excitation contraction coupling by blocking calcium efflux from the sacroplasmic reticulum, allowing the cells to relax a little bit, therefore not being as rigid. And for dantrolene, this does need to be tapered down, up and down as well. And while this is not typically associated to the drug itself, this is more so to ensure complete resolution of NMS. On average, you would like to see a patient be on this medication for about 10 days before discontinuation. And if it were to be uh, discontinued abruptly, you can see uh, resumption of hypothermia in those patients. And it was also demonstrated that monotherapy may lead to increased mortality. And again, this is not associated with the medication itself. It was more so that other adequate treatments had not been given appropriately when only dantrolene had been given. Next, we have bromocryptine, which is a, a D2 agonist, and it helps counteract the dopamine blockade. The caveat with this one, it is only available orally, so it's probably more so reserved for patients that are not intubated or mechanically ventilated and maybe demonstrate more milder symptoms of NMS. And this also does need to be titrated up and down uh, due to the risk of developing hypotension. But what are some dosing and considerations regarding these medications? Well, for dantrolene, on average, the doses ranges between one to two and a half milligrams IV every six hours. Duration in the literature is two to 16 days, with the average duration of being 10, again, preferring 10 days of therapy. Um, and some of the adverse effects I just wanted to point out is the hepatotoxicity, so we wouldn't be using this in patients with hepatic failure. And then some of the drug-drug interactions um, include calcium channel blockers and muscle relaxants. These can potentially lead to an increase in the serum potassium, leading to cardiac instability. Next, for bromocryptine, this is 2.5 to 15 milligrams three times a day by mouth, and it needs to be given, again, for at least 10 days. Um, and then you see kind of more normal side effects, constipation, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea with this. And we do need to avoid any uh, tryptans or CYP3A4 substrates when giving bromocryptine. And then lastly, the benzos, which are lorazepam and diazepam. Um, these are standard dosing regimens um, given as needed, typically for any agitation shown. 
And then we do know that these medications, you know, inhibit your respiratory system, so uh, monitoring for excessive sedation is key. Okay, now we have exhausted our pharmacological options. Next up is uh, electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. And this is generally reserved for patients that have failed pharmacological interventions. It's more so used as a last line. And then there have been really not a lot of data out there, no studies or controlled trials to help report efficacy. It's more so in a couple case reports, um, the ones that I looked at, um, there was only one that successfully used ECT alone um, without any other sort of pharmacological in interventions. And then other ones reporting success after exhausting their pharmacological uh, interventions. All right, last question of the day. So the previous patient we had from our question earlier has been diagnosed with NMS. They were intubated and transferred to the ICU. All appropriate supportive measures have been taken. Despite this, the patient's body temperature is still 39 degrees. What is the most appropriate treatment option at this time? Okay, it looks like we have a little bit of a controversy here, but the correct answer is dantrolene. So this is the one that's going to be indicated for hypothermia where the patient's still kind of presenting with an elevated temperature. Uh, lorazepam uh, wouldn't be used specifically for the fever, more so for any sort of agitation shown. Uh, in regards to bromocryptine, um, it can possibly be used. However, uh, it's not available, IV. And then lastly, with acetaminophen, due to the nature of the hypothermia um, with the muscle rigidity, antipyretics are not, haven't been demonstrated to show a reduction in temperature. Now that we have treated our patients and they have complete symptom resolution of NMS, when do we re-challenge? And this question is brought up due to the nature in which the patients were prescribed the medication to begin with. They will typically require an alternate agent, and you would want to wait about two weeks following symptom resolution. You would not want to use the same agent, of course, and then you would want to find a medication that had lower potency towards a D2 receptor, and you also would want to initiate at the lowest possible dose. And then moving forward, you would probably apply those same criteria of frequent monitoring in the outpatient setting. So in summary, NMS is a rather serious but rare life-threatening condition that can be brought on by um, medications such as uh, haloperidol, prochloroperazine, or ketiapine. Also, it's not limited to um, withdrawal of dopaminergic medications such as L-DOPA. It needs to be identified quickly there are limited treatment options, however, we do have drugs to help combat that. And then lastly, if you were to re-challenge, please use an alternate agent. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.